All right, last week we were talking about the power of prayer. We're going to continue that idea of prayer today. And so if you would take your Bibles and turn to the book of James, prayer is an extremely important part of a Christian's life. And James has a lot to say about it, especially in chapter 5, where we're going to be today. So if you would turn to James chapter 5. I lost my bookmark. There we go. James chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the second part of this chapter. As I said last week, we looked at the importance of prayer in the church in the life of the believers and how it is the power or our lifeline to the power of God that's available to us. And as we looked at Acts chapter 12, when Peter was released from prison miraculously, supernaturally, through the work of an angel from God, um, we see that God can accomplish the impossible. And so we're going to look at some aspects, more aspects of that in our prayer today as we read James chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 13. James 5.13, and we'll read down through verse 18. Chapter 5 of James, starting at verse 13, down through 18, the Bible says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick And the Lord shall raise him up, and if he hath committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Let's stop there this morning, and we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our message. So bow with me if you would. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word. Thank you that it is available to us to look into at any time. And as we study this passage this morning, Lord, we know that prayer should be an important part of our life, and yet we need to evaluate ourselves to see if it is. Lord, we lack and are weak so often, and I believe it's because we ignore you so often. And so, Lord, as the disciples asked, as Jesus taught them, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. So through your word today, I pray that you would teach us to pray more effectively. Help us to be obedient to the things that you're going to teach us today. Help us to be ready to receive these things from your word. And Lord, I need your help and power. I need your spirit. So fill me with your spirit, I ask. And may our word, the words that are spoken today be your truth, and that we might be challenged by your word, and that you will accomplish what you have ordained your word to do today. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The power of prayer we talked about last week, we saw a great example of that in Peter being miraculously released from prison, as I said. And I made mention of what Jesus said that we need to remember. He said, if you have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Now, 
I don't think we get the full scope of that statement. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you can move mountains. Okay? And, and if we start to really think about that, and we think about our lives and our prayer lives specifically, I think we start to realize how little faith we really have. And therefore, we pray in very little faith. And James talks here about the prayer of faith, having faith in our prayers, and it's demonstrated in several different ways. But I want to look at this in James chapter 5, because what we hear, what we see here is similar to what we saw in, in Acts chapter 12 last week, that prayer is the power of God in our lives or helps us connect with the power of God in our lives. And in order to live in his power, we must be praying continuously. We saw last week when Peter was in prison, the church prayed for him continuously without stopping. And God answered their prayer. But how often do we really engage ourselves in prayer like that? And how is our lack of faith really reflected in how often we don't pray? And so James exhorts us here about our prayer lives in chapter 5. And he basically says that a, a life lived in faith should be defined by prayer. It's not something that we just add to a life of faith. It's not something that kind of happens because we believe in the Lord. It should be defined. Our, our lives should be defined and marked by prayer and literally continuous prayer. And James continues that here. And so he says in verses 13 through 15, there are three different conditions in our life that should be marked by prayer, or that should be our response, that prayer is our response to these circumstances. He says, first, are you afflicted? So in affliction, in trials and tribulations, what's the response? Pray. And then he says, are you cheerful? And what's the response? He says, sing psalms, but psalms really are prayers of praise. So he says, pray. And then the third one, are you sick? Those people who are in physical sickness, what is their response? Well, as we'll look at in just a minute, these people are almost too weak to pray for themselves, and so they ask others to pray. But no matter what our circumstances are, James says, our life should be marked by continuous prayer. That should be the hallmark of a Christian's life. And so prayer, not just prayer itself, but the prayer in faith and the prayer of faith should be practiced in every condition of our life, a continuous thing. That's how we live by faith, not by sight. We pray according to God's promises. We pray for God's power. We pray for God's provision. But we pray. That should be who we are as God's people. And so I want to take some time and just look more specifically at what James talks about in these different conditions of life and how we're to respond to them in prayer. And he starts and he says, are you afflicted? The remedy, obviously, is prayer. Now, the word afflicted here is the Greek word kakapatheo, and I'll give you a quiz on that later, okay? But it means hardship or suffering, Okay, so we're not talking about physical sickness necessarily. This is hard stuff in life. When you're under affliction, persecution. In fact, if you're using another version other than King James, your Bible may actually use the word suffering here. Okay, are you suffering? 
Now, to understand that, I think we need to understand the context of the passage and who we're reading and who it was written to. This is James, not the Apostle James that was with Jesus. This is James, the half-brother of John, the elder at the Church of Jerusalem that is writing this. And he introduces himself, right, in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. And so when you hear, hear that it's James and he's writing to the twelve tribes, that brings up the idea of Jews, the Hebrews. That's the twelve tribes. And so he is writing to Jews, but he's not writing to just any Jews. He is the elder at the church at Jerusalem in the early church, very early in church history. And so the church in Jerusalem, remember, was made up of mostly Jewish believers at this point. And that's how he addresses this book. He's writing this around 45 AD, and that would be less than 15 years after Christ ascended to heaven. So not very far removed from the ascension, from Pentecost, just 50 days later. Okay, So we we get the idea and the perspective um, about this epistle from the time frame and the conditions, okay? Almost exactly the same year, maybe within a year or so, we see persecution in the church ramping up extensively. It it was about the time that James wrote this book that the Apostle James was martyred by Herod Agrippa, okay? That was the first of the apostles to be executed, And then from there, it just kind of snowballed. And so the persecution is starting to really get bad. In fact, what we read last week in in Acts chapter 12, Peter's miraculous release from prison occurred around 44 B.C., so literally within about a year of when James is writing this. So we see the context of what he's talking about. The people are going through persecution. They're seeing the apostles and leaders in prison. They're seeing the apostles starting to be martyred. And James says, are you afflicted? Are you going through some of that trial, some of that persecution, some of those hard times? Now, it's also during this time that the Jewish Sanhedrin, who didn't like the church because they believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, they started to pressure Jewish believers in Jerusalem obviously about the resurrection of Jesus, but also about continuing to keep all of the rituals of the law. And that bred a debate, as we know, as you study through Acts. You know, in Acts 15, had to, had to come to the conclusion that, no, everybody who's in the church doesn't need to keep all the rituals of the law. Okay? But the Jewish uh, leadership and the Sanhedrin were pressuring the Jewish believers. The Jewish believers still went to worship in the synagogues with other Jews on the Sabbath day. That was their regular practice. Then they would worship with believers together on Sunday, the first day of the week. That was the Lord's day to them because that's the day that Jesus arose from the dead. So in this connection they still had with the synagogue and with other Jews who were not part of the church, they started to get that kind of pressure. And so you see this pressure and the persecution start to mount, especially against these Jewish believers in Jerusalem and in the church at Jerusalem. And so he begins this section on prayer by saying that for those who are undergoing hardship and undergoing persecution with daily trials, that their response should be to pray. And not just a generic prayer, it's obviously to pray to God, to pray for 
deliverance, for help, for strength, but to pray. In James chapter 1, he addresses this, and the whole book really focuses on this as one of its main topics, about praying or our response to persecution. In, in cha- chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, James starts, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations or trials. So he addresses that persecution and that trouble right away. He says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith work is patience. But let patience have her perfect work that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And then he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Isn't that prayer? There it is. So right in the beginning of the book, he's saying prayer is the key here, folks. If you want to rejoice in trials, you've got to pray. If you want to endure through trials, you've got to pray. That's the answer. If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. And so right away at the beginning of this book, James addresses prayer, but he says, the power of prayer is only found as we pray in faith, believing And he says, you can't waver on that. And so this first condition in which James addresses, he says, are you in affliction? Are you in trials? Are you going through suffering, persecution? Pray in faith, believing that God is there, believing God's promises, believing that he has a good purpose for you in this. Now, when people feel that their life is threatened in some way or that they're in danger, what is the natural response? Okay, a lot of people will pray. Just automatically, okay? You, you read about these catastrophes where planes are crashing or things are happening, you know, uh, hurricanes or tornadoes. And what do people say? Oh, man, I was just praying for my life. Now, they may never pray other than that, but it seems like when their life is in danger, that's the first thing that comes to our mind. Why? Because inside us, we know that we are dependent upon God. We cannot live without them. And people will try to live and deny that in their lives, but when that life is threatened, they know from whence it comes and who holds it in his hand. And so that's the first response, that when people are threatened, when they go through hard things, men by nature naturally respond to God. Now, there are exceptions, of course. You know, you may know those people so hardened against God that when trials and hardships come, when things happen, they blaspheme God. They blame God. They don't go to God for help. They just want to blame somebody. And so they blame God. And we read that in Revelation 16. In the end times, when we get to the last of the trial or the tribulation and the judgments that God brings upon the earth and the bold judgments, it says, after those are all poured out, that men blasphemed God. They don't repent, they blaspheme. So there's that response as well. But as believers, that shouldn't even be an option for us. Our first response should be prayer. We should respond to trials and tribulation by prayer. Now, did you ever wonder this? And here's the big question. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Now, I've addressed that question, but let me rephrase it. Why does God allow Christians to go through suffering and persecution? We are his people. He loves us. Why would he allow us to go through all of that? Well, I just answered the question. Because it's our natural response when we enter tribulation and trials to go to God in prayer. And he wants us to pray with him 
to communicate with him, to be near to him. And so if it takes trials and suffering and persecution in our life to drive us to him, then it's all good. See, God has a purpose in our suffering. And sometimes it's just to drive us to our knees so we will come back to prayer to him. Otherwise, we neglect it. So when we enter those difficult times in our lives, how should we pray? Obviously, we pray for help. We pray for strength. We ask God to help us. But what is our first prayer usually? Lord, take it away, right? Go, help it to go away. Fix this thing. That, that's natural because we, we don't want to go through those. But how often do we pray, Lord, I don't know how long this is going to last, but give me endurance, give me strength. And James says, give me patience. That as long as this lasts, I know you have a hand in it, and there's a purpose for it, so give me patience. Do we pray that? Not really. I mean, we can joke about it, you know, because, you know, and you know the old saying, be careful what you pray for because God may give it to you. If you pray for patience, what's God going to do? He's going to put you in circumstances that require patience. Okay, and that's what James says right at the beginning. He says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Don't go to God in prayer and say, Lord, I want patience, but make it easy and give it to me now. That's not going to work. Lord, I want to know how to be a good soldier to endure hardship, but make my life easy. It's not going to work. When we pray, we shouldn't just pray, God, remove the trial. Take away the persecution and the suffering. If you go back in the previous six verses of James chapter 5, James addresses trials and persecutions, and he says that we should endure. If you look at verses 10 through 11, he says, Take my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy, which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job. There's the example. I mean, he's the ultimate example of patience and suffering. And it says, we have seen the end of the Lord or the purpose of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and tender mercy. God does care about us when we're going through those hard times, but he has a good purpose in it. And if God is trying to give us literally good gifts that come from his hand through these experiences of tribulation and trial, then why are we praying immediately, Lord, take it away? He wants to do good things in our life through these things. And so our first response obviously should be prayer, but it should be more about praying for patience to see his hand in this, praying for endurance and strength to get through it no matter how long it lasts, because God has a good reason for it. We may be praying for God to remove his blessing in praying to remove the trial. And so we shouldn't necessarily just ask God, take it away, please. We need to pray, Lord, give me patience through this. Help me to see what you're doing. Help me to endure with your strength so that I can get the blessing at the end. But James says in times of affliction, we are to pray and to pray in faith, believing that God's in control. The second condition, he says, are you merry? And he says, cheerful. Is your life going well? 
nothing really out of control right now. Is that the situation of life? Then you should sing psalms or prayers of praise. The, psalm, the word psalms there is the Greek word solo. It's the word we get psalm from. It means to play an instrument or make a melody. And the reference, obviously, is to the Old Testament psalms, which Israel would sing together in their worship. But that was not just their songbook, the book of Psalms. It was their prayer book as well. Many times Israel would pray through, and Jews still do on many occasions, they would pray through psalms as prayers to God. And many, if you know psalms, many of the psalms that they pray through are prayers of praise and thanksgiving. I mean, we, we are familiar with the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. Okay, that's a very comforting psalm. We usually pray that or go to that in times of trouble. What about the 100th Psalm? How many times have you prayed that or that's come to mind? Okay, it's a prayer of thanksgiving, not necessarily in trial, but just to praise God for who he is. And so James says, when things are going well, when you're cheerful and merry, sing psalms which is a form of prayer of praise. Now, unfortunately, this may be the one condition in life where we neglect prayer the most. Because when things are going well, we're not on our knees going, Lord, please help me. Lord, you got to provide for me. Lord, I can't do this. Okay, we live our life in relative comfort and ease. Everything seems to be going as planned. We have everything we need, and so we're like, yeah, I've got it, God. Don't worry about me today. Right? We've seen that we pray more already when life is hard. But we should pray the same when life is easy, James says. When you're cheerful, when things are going well. And this is a problem not just with us. This is a problem all throughout history with God's people. In fact, God warned Israel before he took him into the promised land. In, De- in two places, in Deuteronomy 6, he says this, And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of good things which thou fillest not, and wells dig which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. He said the same thing in chapter 8, verses 10 through 14, when thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord God for the good land which he hath given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God, in not keeping his commandments, his judgments, his statutes, which I I command this day. And he goes on to describe the blessings that they will have in the promised land, which they did get from God's hand. And what happened? They forgot God. And how often do we do the same thing? We have all the blessings. We have all the good things. Everything is taken care of. Everybody's well. I'm good. I don't need God right now. I'm okay. And so it's true of us. We pray less and we think of God less when everything is going well. But James says here, when things are going well, is the time to remember why things are going well. Because God's still in control. Because God is blessing us from his hand. Because God has provided all that we need, just like he promised. And God is with us. 
The problem is we just don't acknowledge his presence. We just want the gifts rather than the giver. And so we don't pray as much when things are going well. Remember why your lives are going well, why there's no turmoil, why there's no sickness, why there's no suffering, because God has blessed you. And as we remember that, then we should praise the Lord in prayer and in singing his praises, James says. So the prayer shouldn't get less when it's okay, when we feel good. The prayer should be the same. We should continue in prayer. And here we have opportunity to praise God more. Instead of spending time asking him for help and asking him to provide, we can thank him for his help and thank him for his provision and praise him because he's a good God. And if we truly live by faith, then we believe that all things come from God's hand, whether they be good or bad, just as chapter 1, verse 17 tells us. All good gifts come down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness of turning. Now, actually, that passage is in the context of suffering, and so those good gifts come through suffering, but even apart from suffering, all things come from him. And so our prayer life shouldn't change when things are going well. So James says here in verse 13, when life is hard, pray for endurance. When life is good, pray with thanksgiving and praise, but pray. We have to keep praying. And then thirdly, he gets to verse 14, and here's a third, uh, third situation. He says, are you sick? And what's our response to sickness? Call for the elders to come and pray, anointing me with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, there's not a command for the sick person specifically to pray, but the obviously, we're going to pray when we're sick, hopefully. But this verse has probably proven to be one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to clearly interpret and apply based on the vast differences of opinion by leading theologians and pastors for probably the past several centuries, okay? And this is a challenge, I have to tell you. Some will say that this passage is not referring to physical sickness at all, okay? And there's some credence to that. Let me explain. They say it's, expo- it's referring to extreme spiritual weakness due to suffering and persecution which they have undergone. That could be very true considering the context that we've already looked at. There's extreme persecution and suffering already happening in the church of Jerusalem to the very people he's writing to. And so it could be they've just gotten to the point where they can't take it anymore. And because of their response to the suffering, now they're burdened down with sin as well. We'll see that later in the chapter. And they can't even pray for themselves. And so James says, call for the elders to come and pray over you. And so that's one way to look at this. And they say when a believer goes through so much trouble in his life that he's literally worn out spiritually and cannot pray for himself anymore, then he's to enlist the help of the leaders of the church to pray for him. Now, the leaders in the elders represent the church as a whole. So really, he's petitioning the whole church for their prayer support, but specifically to call for the elders to come and pray. Now, again, that interpretation has a lot of merit especially based on verse 15, which references sin in the life of the one who is sick here. And it could be that that's why he's sick, because he's succumbed to sin. In fact, in two, the last two verses of his chapter uh, uh, that we didn't read yet, 
refer to a spiritual brother restoring one who is caught or, or weakened in sin, and they literally save a soul from hell. Okay? So this interpretation of this talking about spiritual weakness, the one who is sick, spiritually sick, cannot pray by himself, and so he calls the, Holy, calls the, the elders to pray for him. I think it's a good way to take the passage as a whole, considering all of the context. Okay, But I also believe there's a different focus in verse 14 specifically than just that. Now, another way to look at this sickness is that it is a physical sickness, and I believe that's true as well. And this text infers that. The Greek word for sick in verse 14 is astheneo, okay, the first word, astheneo. And it carries the idea of extreme physical weakness or illness. There's other places in the New Testament that use the same word to refer to this physical weakness. And in every place, it doesn't have spiritual weakness in mind. It talks about physical infirmities. People who are lame came to Jesus and healed them. That was astheneo, a physical sickness. Okay, And so in verse 15, when you get to the, the second instance of sick, um, in verse 15 it says that the prayer of faith shall save the sick. That's a different word. That's the word kamno in Greek. And that means one who is weak to the point of fainting. So that's an extreme situation where you're now debilitated and really can't even support yourself to stand up on your own two feet. So we're talking about physical sickness to the point of a debilitating illness that saps your strength to the point where you're literally fainting, passing out, and cannot sustain your own activity in life. You can't live a normal life. And so with that background for this word sick, and the fact really that nothing else in this passage is used symbolically, then I have to take verse 14 and 15 at face value, believing that it's talking to a person who is literally weakened through extreme physical illness, and also that the anointing with oil is literally for the elders to anoint with oil as they pray over the person. Because it's not symbolic. There's nothing else symbolic here. So I believe that James is saying in verses 14 and 15, for the one who's suffering a debilitating sickness in their body, which has rendered them incapable of functioning in everyday life, that they're to call for the elders to come to physically pray over them, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And that's exactly what the verse says. And so that's exactly what I believe should be done. Now, there's multiple evidences of faith. I talk about the prayer of faith. This is a prayer of faith or an act of faith in this process. If you believe that all Scripture, as 2 Timothy 3 tells us, if if all Scripture is profitable for us today, then we can't dismiss this as a cultural thing that they did during Jesus' day or during the days of the apostles. Okay, It's written by James to the church, This James is still applicable to us today, so we can't dismiss it and say, well, that's what they did then, but we don't do that now. Those who don't believe that this is a literal command for us today and that we should just interpret it spiritually, when it gets to the anointing with oil, they will symbolize that, as I mentioned. And so they say, this 
was symbolic of the Holy Spirit, so the elders are to pray, and the anointing means they're to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would do his work in the body of the sick person, restore them. Now, I agree with that, okay? That's exactly how the elders should be praying. But I don't believe the oil is just symbolic in that. Now, the only other reference to the Scripture in to anointing with oil, you find in Mark chapter 6, verse 13. This is when Jesus sends his disciples out for the very first time. And the verse uh, in Mark 6, uh, 6, 13 says, And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. So we have a connection literally to anointing with oil and to healing. And James uses that same phrase, anointing with oil, here in saying that's what the elders should do to sick people. Now, the people who don't believe that this is a physical oil anointing, again, it's symbolic. And they will say, well, you know, here we see in Mark chapter 6, there was physical anointing of oil by the apostles, and there was healing in that same instance. But because the apostles were given the supernatural gift of the spirit of healing, the oil is associated with that. Since the supernatural gift of healing from the spirit has ceased as a spiritual gift within the church as a whole, then therefore the practice of anointing with oil should cease as well. I'm not going to disagree with them that I believe that God doesn't necessarily give specific people in the church the supernatural gift of healing. We don't see that. That was a power given to the apostles to to validate the authority that God had given them. And so I would call myself a cessationist that those miraculous gifts have ceased for the most part in the church today, but I'll call myself a cessationist with footnotes because I also believe that just because the Holy Spirit may not give that specific spiritual gift of healing, that doesn't mean that God cannot and does not miraculously heal today. And so there is credence to believe that miraculous healing can occur. It may not be the same and look the same as when the apostles did it, but James here is referring to that very thing. And since James is writing to this church, then this has to be applicable to us in some way. So by following this command in Scripture and obeying what the Bible says in simple faith, no matter how odd it may seem by today's standards and by our culture, I believe God can use this simple act of faith to heal people if we do what he says. The whole context is the prayer of faith. And here's an act of faith by the one who's sick. In calling for the elders, the sick believer is acting in faith, submitting himself to the spiritual authorities that God has ordained in the church. He's calling for their help. And in a sense, he's also admitting humility or submitting himself to the fact that he cannot do this alone and he is dependent upon the other members of the church to act on his behalf. And that's what God tells us to do anyway, doesn't he? And so, in essence, we're just obeying God in submitting ourselves as the sick person in this instance to the help of the church as a whole, the elders representing the church as a whole. And this is exactly what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, when he talks about the church and his members, and he says, if one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. 
And since we all suffer together as one body, then as one body, we should all be together in prayer for the healing of that one sick person. That's why we give you the prayer sheets, so we can pray together in unity for God to answer these prayers. And in many cases, it's for healing. And so we pray in faith. We act in faith as a sick person. But what, what prayer of faith or whose prayer of faith is chapter or verse 15 talking about? Well, it's the whole body. It's not just the sick person. It's not just the elders. It's the whole body, the whole church. They're led by the spiritual believers of the, or the spiritual leaders of the church. And the church prays believing that God can and will do what we're asking. So the sick person obeys in faith. The elders obey in faith. The church obeys in faith. And it all focuses on prayer. Prayer for God's intervention. And it's the entire church unified in faith and trusting the Lord to heal the sick person because they believe that God, as the great physician, can and will heal this person. Now, let's come to the oil and take just a minute to look at the oil. There are some, as I mentioned, who say that the oil is symbolic. There are others who believe, yes, you should use the oil because in Bible times, oil was medicine. They used it as a medicinal application, and so that's what this is talking about. In fact, today in the Mideast, people there still use olive oil as a medicine in many applications, and many of them literally put it on their entire bodies because it protects their skin from the damaging rays of the sun. It brings health benefits in other ways. And so olive, is used, olive oil is used as a medicine, and, and many people will say, well, that's the application here. Well, if that's the case, then God is telling us here through James in this chapter that when you get sick, instead of calling for the doctor to prescribe your medicine, you should call the pastor to prescribe your medicine. And if that's the case, I can tell you absolutely that you don't want to call me when you get sick and ask me what you should be taking. Okay? I can't do that for you. Now, I might be able to help you with a mosquito bite or poison ivy, maybe hay fever, okay? But when we're talking about the kind of illness that James is referring to here, I have no idea. Now, here's the perspective, and this is, I'm going to give you the warning. I had a great aunt that lived to be 103, and she lived the last 50 years of her life eating Snickers and drinking Pepsi every day. Is that the cure? Maybe. I don't know. So don't come to me asking what medicine you should take. That's what God has given us doctors for, okay? So should we pray then for miraculous healing rather than just normal healing through medical treatment? Absolutely, because we know God can heal miraculously, but God has also given us doctors and medicine to help us get better, okay? So many times that healing will come through the care of a physician or the medicine that we have to take. That brings up another question. And by the way, before I get to that question, let me just remind you, does God really want us to pray for miraculous healing? Jump down to verse 17 and 18 very quickly. Why does he give us this example of Elijah, Elias, who a man subject to like passions as we are? He's saying he's just like you. And then he said he prayed earnestly that it may not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three and a half years. 
God changed the weather because of this man's prayer. Now, that's miraculous intervention. And why would God put that miraculous intervention in this context if he did not want us to pray for miraculous healing? It wouldn't make sense to me in any other context. Okay? So, yes, we should pray for miraculous healing. But then there's the question, should we go to doctors in the first place? I had a friend who grew up in a family that was in a cult that believed God would heal, and they never went to doctors, they never used medicine, okay? And that was fine and good. And then an aunt died from a disease that she could have been healed from. And they had questions. And then one day, as a small child, my friend was playing in his yard, and his father accidentally ran over his arm with a lawnmower. And that ended their belief that God could heal despite the circumstances without help from other people. They rushed him to the hospital. They broke protocol within this cult. They were basically exiled because they didn't believe in faith that God would heal, but it saved my friend's life. There's not a, this is not a valid application that because God can miraculously heal, we don't use doctors and medicine. Okay, that's extremism. God uses doctors and medicine. In fact, if you read through the book of Acts, written by Luke, you see that Paul himself many times had his beloved physician, Luke, by his side. Luke was a doctor, a doctor of medicine, and he practiced medicine. And I'm sure he took care of Paul on many occasions with medicine. Now, granted, sometimes doctors and medicine end up hurting us in the end, but you have to remember, all good things that God has given us, Satan has given us a corrupted version of. And sin has done that for us. So are all doctors and all medicine good for us? No. But has God given us doctors and medicine to help us? Yes. So it's not avoid them because God will heal me. It's trust God to heal you sometimes miraculously, sometimes through medical procedures. Now, getting back to the oil very quickly, I believe then that this oil is not symbolic. It's not a medicinal thing, but it says that it should be applied. It should be anointed on the person. The word anointed means rubbed, okay? It's not the oil that heals, but it's an act of faith and obedience, It's symbolic in a sense, and as we apply it, it demonstrates the power that we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit in this person to heal, but it's still a physical application. And so in the anointing with oil, the elders are petitioning, again, the Holy Spirit to work his power in this sick person to relieve them of this physical illness. Now, there's one more phrase at the end of verse 14 we cannot ignore, because it's extremely important. It just doesn't say anointing with oil, it says In the name of the Lord. In whose power does healing come? Where do we get everything that we have, including strength and health? From God. And so here, as the prayer is done, and as the oil is anointed on the person, it must be done in the name of the Lord, recognizing that it's the power of God who is accomplishing this. It's faith in God why we do this, 
And by using the name of Jesus Christ in this practice, then we recognize under whose authority this is being done and whose will we are seeking. And so it literally focuses on the Lord, not on the sick person. It's what God will do through them and in them. And so we can't skip over that in the name of the Lord. And that brings us to verse 15. It says the prayer of faith will heal the sick. Now, does this mean that it's always God's will for us to be healed from physical illness? There are people who will tell you that, and they are false teachers. There are faith healers who get people to give them lots of money and flock to their meetings because they say, God wants you to be healthy and happy. God wants you to be rich and have lots of friends and have no turmoil in your life. And they make lots of money doing it. But let's use Paul as an example to this question. Does God always want us to be healed from physical illness? Paul had what he called a thorn in the flesh. A physical ailment of some kind. We don't know. Many people speculate it may have been with his eyes. could have been something else that he suffered with. But in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul testifies to this thorn in the flesh, and he says that it was given to him by God. It doesn't say by God, but apparently he's saying it was given to him by God. God's the one that gives it to him. And he prays three times very specifically for God to remove this thorn in the flesh and heal him. And what is God's answer? My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. A very obvious no. No, Paul, I'm not going to heal you. Because I can glorify myself better through your weakness. Because people will see that it's only by my strength that you can do what you can do. And so we can't say, yeah, God's will is to heal everybody. Now, when Jesus was on earth, he healed all that came to him in faith. No one was left out. Okay? He healed them all. But we also know that through history, many great, sincere, dedicated believers have died because of disease. So how does that work? See, we have to look at healing from God's perspective, not ours. Are we to pray for physical healing? Absolutely. But I heard one pastor say it this way. Sometimes when we pray for somebody to be healed, we're asking God to keep them out of heaven and on this earth so we can continue suffering with them. Wouldn't it be better for God to take away the suffering completely? And he does when people die and go to heaven. So that's perfect healing when we're in a glorified new body that never will get sick, that will never experience pain, will never suffer again? Isn't that the kind of healing you want? Should we not pray for physical healing? Nope. We should pray for physical healing. James says that. Okay? But when we pray for healing, we pray in faith. And what does faith mean? Jesus said in Matthew 21, 22, in all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. Now, the key to understanding that verse, which has been a, 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 an enigma to many people, is to understand what the word believing is, okay? Believing is the word pistuo in Greek. It means to have faith. So it's praying and faith, same things James is talking about. 
Hebrews 1, or Hebrews 11, 1 tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So it's beyond our ability to perceive it perfectly, what we're praying for even. But we believe God's in control, and so we believe that God is good. And it says in, in um, Hebrews, the substance of things hoped for. As believers, what do we hope for? Do we hope that we're all going to get better temporarily so we can go on suffering forever in this world? In lives that continue the cycle of sickness and get better and sickness and getting better and sickness and getting better? That's what we hope for? No. What we hope for is the perfected, glorified body that we get when we get to heaven. No more sickness, no more pain, no more suffering. And so as we pray for God's miraculous healing for sick believers, there's nothing wrong with that. But ultimately, if we pray in faith, that faith means that we believe that God will do all things well and that he knows what's best for that person as well as for everybody else involved. And so, yes, we do ask for physical healing because God may heal that person. But if he doesn't and they die, then we rejoice that he healed them ultimately and permanently. So God can miraculously heal through this prayer of faith. Absolutely. But will he always heal when we pray this way? Not necessarily. Not the way we expect. But always the way he intends. And that's what James means when he says, the prayer of faith, believing that God will do what's best, will heal or save the sick. We're going to have to stop there because of time. We're not going to get to the next couple of verses. We'll do that another time. I want to close with this personal testimony about this passage, okay? When I was a novice pastor, only in the ministry for about four years, a man and his wife came to visit my church one Sunday, and I had known him a little bit through previous business dealings. And after church, he asked me to go to his house because he had a bunch of questions for me about me and about our church and what we believed to practice and all of that. And so I went to his house that Monday evening, and I expected the normal questions, you know, about church, et cetera, et cetera. When I walked in, he sat me down on his couch, and he pulled out a notebook, like that thick. And he opened it up. He says, I've been thinking about these things for a long time, and I wrote down some questions. He had four and a half pages of questions, and they were not easy questions, Okay. One of the questions that he asked me was about this passage. And he said, I read this in James chapter 5, and he says, I've already endured two bouts with cancer over the last several years. He says, and thankfully, right now it's in remission because of the treatment that I received. Then he pointed to the passage in James 5, and he said, so how would you practice this if I came to you if I was sick? And I never really had studied it in depth, or thought about it that much because it never came up. And so I said a very quick, desperate prayer of wisdom to God, and God gave me a piece about how I responded, and I said, you know, I believe that as believers we need to obey God in everything, even the simple acts of faith that we don't understand. And so, even though I've never done it, if somebody came to me who is sick and pointed to this passage, that's what I would do. Neither one of us knew at that point that four days later he would take his annual trip to, to Mayo Clinic for a checkup for his previous cancer. He had been clean for several years. And the new, bad news came back that day that he had lung cancer. <coughs> Excuse me. And so he called me from Mayo Clinic 
on, on, I think it was a Thursday afternoon. And he said, well, there's bad news. He said, they just told me my cancer's back, but it's in my lungs this time. He said, so what are we going to do? I said, Jim, what do you want to do? He said, we already talked about it. I said, okay, we're going to do it on Sunday in church. Now, Saturday for me was a rough day. I spent the entire day fasting and praying about this because it was I'd never done it. It was brand new. I also desperately drove all over town looking for some kind of anointing oil because I had no idea what to use, okay? But Sunday came. We had a full crowd in, in our church there. That meant about 30 or 35 people. And I preached from this passage, similar message to what I preach today. And after the service, about seven of us, I called the men of the church because we only had me as an elder and one other deacon at that point. And so the other men in the church joined me, and we literally gathered around Jim and put our hands on him, and I anointed him with oil, and we prayed over him. We went home. We continued to pray for Jim, and he went back a week and a half later to Mayo Clinic to begin his treatment. And at the beginning of treatment, they have to do a follow-up scan to know exactly where to target the radiation that they were going to give him. And so he had the x-ray done, and then he sat in the room, and the doctor didn't come back, and the doctor didn't come back, and he sat there wondering what's going on. Is it worse than it was? And finally, the doctor comes back with a puzzled expression, and he says, I spent all this time looking, and I keep comparing them, and there's nothing on the second scan. It's gone. He said, it shows in the first one, but there's no cancer there. Jim said, of course there's not. God healed me before I came here. I'll tell you what, the next Sunday at our small church in West Michigan, that was a praise service. And we didn't intend it to be necessarily, but how could you not? That's why I carry this bottle of oil with me to every service that I lead because I will never want to miss the opportunity to bring down the power of God in someone's life by following God in simple obedience and prayer. God can do things in ways we could never imagine. We saw it last week. Here, James is telling us the same thing. The power of God is available to us through prayer. Do we pray that way in faith, believing that God can do what he says he can do? And that's why James says here, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. How much are we missing of God's blessing because we don't pray? I encourage you, I beg you, make prayer a priority because you will see God work in your life like you never have before. But you must pray in faith. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you 
have promised that you will take care of us, that you will heal our diseases. And it doesn't always look the way we expect it to look. But Lord, help us to always pray in faith. Help us to obey you in simple faith, trusting you and doing what you say in your word. Not questioning the outcome, not questioning the process, but knowing that you are the all-wise God who wants what's best for us. So help us to accept those gifts from your hand and to acknowledge you in prayer always, in good times, in bad times, in sickness and in health. May we go to you every day diligently, fervently seeking your will for our lives. Thank you for what you're going to do in each one of us and through each one of us as we trust you and obey you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.